I, I would preach for you now. But I would not do it without your help. I have words, God, you know, but my words mean nothing. You have power, and you are the living word, and we need your word to come into our hearts today and show us the way of truth. God, there are probably lots of Sundays when I do not pause and do not remember that I'm nothing without you. Lord Jesus, I pray that today will be different. And in the same way that you anoint my lips to speak, I pray that you anoint the ears of the people to hear. Because, Lord, as inept as I am at speaking, as a people, we are inept at listening and hearing your word in such a way where we leave change. We often are hearers of your word and not doers. So, Lord, today I pray that you would not only help us to hear, but help us to leave and to do and to serve you and to know that whatever it is we set out to do, we're nothing without you. Lord Jesus, I don't want to do this without you. So, though I may be on the stage, I pray that I not be seen. And, and while I am the one speaking in the microphone, I pray that it will not be my voice that is heard. May I disappear into you, O oh Jesus, even now as I preach for you. We pray all of these things in the mighty name of Jesus, who is and was and is to come. Amen. Welcome to you. My name is Tim Harris. I'm pastor here at Woodburn Baptist Church in the cafe. Any of you joining us by way of audio or video podcast, we welcome you. Thank you for finding us and being a part of this worship service. Open your Bibles today to Revelation chapter 19. We're finishing up this morning and tonight the sermon series entitled The End of Everything. And by the end of tonight, we will have finished up this series. Uh, it's been a, a very rapid run through Revelation, but hopefully still fruitful for our, for our congregation. I know it's been good for me. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11 is where we'll begin. It was probably 1982, uh, so let Papa tell you a story here, 1982. I was um, probably a junior in high school, Warren Central High School, go Dragons. Um, the, the movie Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan was coming out. Any Trekkies, any, any other, you know, nerd alert. Uh, so Star Trek, The Wrath, Wrath of Khan was coming out. I, I was pretty excited about the movie. A lot of us guys were pretty excited about the movie. So uh, we went to the late showing of it. I think we were probably at the Plaza Twin Theater, which is now where Crossland Church meets. But we went to the Plaza, the late night showing to see Star Trek, Wrath of Khan. So there is actually an earlier showing, which is the very first showing, and then we were there at the 9.30 or 10 o'clock showing, whatever. But, but anyway, uh, what you got to know, we're standing in line. We had paid big money for the movie. We're just so excited. Star Trek, the wrath of God. And then the, the show ahead of us, they let out. And so we're waiting to go in, and, and the theater ahead of us is, is emptying out. 
out. So they're coming out the door. And so we're watching them, and you know how you're trying to read their faces to find out, is it good? Is it good? But as they're walking out, about the fourth guy who walks out, steps outside the door. And again, here's a whole line of people waiting to see this movie. We, we've lived our whole lives to see this movie, Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. He steps out the door and says, Spock dies! Spock dies. At the end of Wrath of Khan, Spock dies. I remind you, we haven't seen the movie yet. We paid big money to see the movie, and some idiot steps out and spoils it. Spock dies. You know what, though? Turns out, I mean, I was mad. I was, I was mad. I mean, I said, make a preacher cuss, and I wasn't a preacher then, understand? I mean, he's ruined the movie. But as it turns out, it it didn't really ruin the movie. I kind of enjoyed the movie knowing exactly what's going to happen. It took all of the the, the anxiety out of watching it. I didn't have to try to figure out what's going to happen. I I mean, I knew exactly Spock's going to die. So actually knowing that going in, let me relax and actually kind of enjoy things. It's strange. But actually a recent scientific study from the University of California in San Diego, they actually tested the theory that people enjoy things better if the ending is spoiled. And it turns out we do. They they took a a group of people, they gave them stories to read, and half of the people, they told them the ending of the story before they even told them the story. And that's the group that said they enjoyed the story the most. Something about knowing the ending, it just lets us sort of not worry, we just sit back and enjoy the trip a little more. So as you read the book of Revelation, understand human history is a story, and you've already had the ending spoiled. You understand? We know how this ends. We know where everything leads, and everything leads us to the feet of Jesus. Once you know that, it takes a lot of the anxiety out of your life. Revelation 19, verse 11. Let's start there. Oh, this is so good. This is so good. Revelation 19.11. Then I saw heaven opened, and a white horse was standing there. Its rider was named Faithful and True, for he judges fairly and wages a righteous war. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. Y'all know who this is yet? A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. (laughs) That is so good. You know how in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, this isn't even the sermon yet. But in in the Old Testament, to have somebody's name is a pretty big deal. If you have the power to name somebody, that means that you have authority over them. It's sort of like when you get a dog, what's the first thing you do? You name that dog. So when the dog is running out in the street, you can go, Fluffy, Fluffy, hey, back here, Fluffy. You understand? If you can't have the name, you have no control. That's why nobody pays any attention to their grandma, because your grandma calls you every name but yours. She goes through all the cousins, you understand? But you know good and well, as long as she's calling me Cindy, I don't have to come. You understand? If you have the name, you have power, you have authority. But notice, he has a name written on him that no one understood except himself. What does that say? Nobody has power over him. There is no authority higher than his. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his title was the Word of God. You know who this is yet? 
The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his robe at his thigh was written this title, King of all kings and Lord of all lords. Who is it? That's Jesus. That's Jesus like you've never seen him before. That's Jesus. That's the second coming. He's here. That's the return of the king right there. Okay, but wait, some of you are thinking, Pastor Tim, are you about to finish this whole study of the book of Revelation and, and we never get raptured? Where's the rapture? What about the rapture? Well, what about the rapture? Now, some of you probably think a lot about these things. You think a lot about the rapture. Others of you, perhaps it's, it's a stranger sort of doctrine. So let me sort of back up and, and catch you up. For, for most of my lifetime, there's been a, a very prevalent uh, style of teaching the book of Revelation that really depended upon a certain uh, timetable, a, a timeline that, that begins with what we call the rapture. And the rapture is that moment when Jesus comes and calls all of his children home to him. The, the rapture, they're, they're caught up in the air, so to speak. And it's, that's the I'll fly away moment, you, you know. And it's, it's the rapture. And, and he raptures all of his children out. And then the way it's often been preached after that, he, he takes out just his children, and that leaves everybody else. It leaves the Jews. And so the way the old preachers used to preach it was that after that, there'd be seven years of great tribulation, seven years with the church gone, seven years that would follow, and then Jesus would return finally and forever. Now, we've gone through the whole book of Revelation. We've read it pretty carefully why haven't we said any of that? Why haven't we gotten to any of that? Well, as hard as this is for some of you, and honestly, it's been hard for me because I just told you the way I've always heard the book of Revelation preached. The problem is the way I've always heard it preached and the way I read the text, they don't match. And I am obligated to follow the text. I'm obligated to follow the Bible. Well, Brother Tim, have you not read the Left Behind series? Well, I read book one, I stopped. I stopped because the Left Behind series, it, it may be excellent fiction. And I know that some people, some of you even, may have come to the Lord after reading one or two of the Left Behind books. I understand that and I respect that. But I'm still obligated to follow the scripture. And, and I just don't see that timeline here. So let me go back. What about the rapture? What about it? Well, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Let's turn some pages in the Bible. Go back to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We've said that Revelation, some of you say it's a little bit hard to interpret, hard to understand. So again, the rule is always let Scripture interpret Scripture. We don't let the Left Behind series or the late great planet Earth by Hal Lindsey in the 70s, we don't let even the Schofield Bible notes interpret the Bible for us. Let's let the Bible interpret the Bible for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. This is the only reference in Scripture really to what we call the rapture, and it's not in Revelation, it's in 1 Thessalonians. Paul is talking about the second coming, and Paul tells us about the rapture. So there is a rapture. Here we go. 
for the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from their graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up, will be raptured. You got that? We'll be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Okay, that's all we have. As far as the rapture goes, that's all we have. Well, why, does, why don't we have more? The Left Behind series had 16 books. Well, if you can make 16 books out of these couple of verses, you made some stuff up. I mean, I don't know another way to say it. This is all we have, and I insist that this is the Word of God, and the Bible we have is the Bible that God wants us to have, and that simply means what we're told in Scripture about the end times is all we're going to know. Nobody gets to know more than the Bible. And all we have about the rapture is this part right here. And Paul doesn't seem to know anything about, like the whole left behind business, where there are years and years and years of people walking around wondering where we all went. It's, it's, it's simply not there, brothers and sisters. And if you read it differently, I, I humbly say, I, we'll discuss it. Show me your passages. Show me where you find that. I just don't find that period of time between the rapture and the second coming. It sounds to me like he comes and we go and it's over. I mean, understand, he created this entire universe in, in a split second. All I had to do is speak it into existence. How long do you think it's going to take him to turn the lights out on this place? Understand? Well, but there's those passages in the Gospels, and some of you are already there. What about that passage in Matthew, Pastor Tim, where Jesus is talking about the rapture? Okay, let's go there. Matthew 24, let's go there, because this is, this is good stuff. And I like this passage. But does it say what we've always thought it says? Again, you've got to come back to the Scripture. Matthew 24, verse 37 Again, this is a Jesus' long sermon about the second coming. Jesus' long sermon about the end of things. And notice what he says here. Because this sounds a lot like the, the way the old preachers used to preach the rapture. Listen. Verse 40. Matthew 24, verse 40. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. See, there's the left behind thing. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken the other left. Well, that, that sounds exactly what the left behind books say, that, that, that Christians are just sort of in a secret way be taken out and then everybody else is left to, to wonder and suffer. But, but now, what is the scripture saying? Back up a little because most of the preachers never do. But back up, go all the way to verse 37. This is Jesus. When the son of man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize what was going to happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be, say the word, taken the other left. Two women will be grinding flour at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Okay, so the question becomes, what does it mean to be taken? Just like it was in the days of Noah, Jesus says, so shall it be in the coming of the days of the Son and Man. 
where the people were living their lives and then suddenly without warning, the flood came and what? Took them away. Same way, Jesus says, two men will be grinding, one will be taken, the other left. You see what's happening here? What does it mean to be taken? Taken's what you don't want. Taken is judgment. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke's version of this same sermon, at the end of this, the disciples, Jesus says, one will be taken, the other left. And the disciples say, where? You know, taken where? And what does Jesus say? Where the dead bodies are, that's where the vultures will gather. Okay, does that sound like heaven? So honestly, in Jesus' sermon, it seems to me in just reading the text that, that he's using this language to talk about the suddenness of his coming. Nobody's going to be expecting it. Everybody's just going to be going about their lives, grinding at the mill and walking and drinking coffee at Starbucks and watching old Star Trek movies at the theater. You're just going to be in the middle of the flow of your life until all of a sudden it's over. It's over. And with that sudden coming of the Lord comes this dramatic and eternal separation from one another. Once and for all, God's people are separated. There's a judgment that comes with that. Do you understand? So, so honestly, just in reading the text, I, I don't see this, this, this period of time after which everybody's left behind and left behind to suffer, but God's people are spared that. In the book of Revelation, there is no indication that God's people will escape the suffering. I hate to break the news to you. The book of Revelation simply continues to tell us to be prepared to suffer and to be perse persevering and, and, and hopeful, even in the midst of suffering, because Jesus still wins at the end. We know how the movie turns out, so we don't have to fear. But that doesn't mean we won't have to live through some very, very difficult times before the end comes. And when the end comes, we will all be caught up together. He will snatch us out. But understand, when we're snatched out, it's over. It's finished. It's the end. That's, that's the simplest way, I believe, to read the text. But I offer that with all humility. If it's different, if the rapture comes the other way, I'm still going. I, I plan to participate. I, I won't sit it out. But, but I'm just trying to read the text very simply. So let's go back. Verse 12, Revelation chapter 19, his eyes were like flames of fire and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his title was the word of God. The armies of heaven dressed in the finest of pure white linen followed him on white horses. From his mouth came a sharp sword to strike down the nations. How does he defeat the nations? With his word. His word is like a sword. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will release the fierce wrath of God, the Almighty, like juice flowing from a wine press. On his thigh was written this title, King of all kings, Lord of all lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, Come! Gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, and strong warriors, of horses and their riders, and of all humanity, both free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the world and their armies gathered together to fight against the one sitting on the horse and his army. And the beast was captured. And with him the false prophet who did mighty miracles on behalf of the beast. Miracles that deceived all who had accepted the mark of the beast and who worshipped this statue. Both the beast and his false prophet were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. 
Their entire army was killed by the sharp sword that came from the mouth of the one riding the white horse. And the vultures all gorged themselves on the dead bodies. Okay, another thing for those of you who kind of grew up with the preaching I grew up with. uh, Is that Armageddon? Because honestly, my preacher always made a big deal about Armageddon, the battle of Armageddon. And in our popular culture, people who don't know anything about the Bible still know about the battle of Armageddon. That's how strongly we've preached about this final battle. Is, Is this it? My old preacher used to count how many horses that could be in the world at that time. And he would calculate the square footage in the valley of Megiddo, the, the Armageddon there. And he figured out how many horses it would take that if you killed all the people and all the horses, that the blood would flow to the horses' bridles. I mean, he figured all of this out. He was kind of obsessed with the battle of Armageddon. Is, is, is this it? Is this it? Because it's kind of hard to tell. The only place Armageddon is mentioned in Revelation we read this week is in Revelation 16, 16. So go there with me. Revelation 16, 16. Revelation 16, 16 says, And the demonic spirits gathered all the rulers and their armies to a place with the Hebrew name Armageddon. Okay, I remind you, that's, that's one verse. Anybody who knows a whole lot about the Battle of Armageddon, if they know a lot more than that, they, they, they made some stuff up. You understand? That's all we're told. And whether or not that verse in 16, 16 is related to what happens in chapter 19, it's hard to say. Remember, John is seeing visions. It's a revelation of, of Jesus Christ. And these visions don't necessarily tell a story. They're not necessarily in chronological order. And and sometimes he jumps forward in time and sometimes backward. And sometimes he'll have multiple visions of the very same event from different perspectives. So so all the efforts to weave this together in a timeline, in a story, on on a chart, are, are probably misguided. If God wanted us to have a timeline in a chart, I think he would have given that to us. The Bible we have is the Bible God intends that we have. So, is this the battle of Armageddon? Let's just ask that question. Is this the battle? Well, Jesus looks like a warrior. We certainly would say that. He's on a white horse, and in the ancient world and even in our world, the white horse always symbolizes what? It's always the good guy. It's always victory. Yeah, so he comes on a white horse. His, his rider is named Faithful and True. He judges fairly and wages a righteous war. So there you go. He's waging a righteous war. He judges fairly. His eyes were like flames of fire, and on his head were many crowns. A name was written on him that no one understood except himself. He wore a robe. He wore a robe dipped in blood. His robe is bloody. It sounded victorious till till then. Since when does blood represent victory? Since the cross, since the cross, 
So you just need to understand something real, real plain, and this is just plain Christian doctrine theology. The battle was fought where? At the cross. The battle was fought at the cross, and the victory was won where? At the cross. So when you read through Revelation, you find out pretty quickly that there, there is no war. I mean, there's just not a war. How could there be a war? He's God. Understand? He's God. What are you going to do? Come out with your little Nerf gun? I mean, how silly. I mean, how silly. What are you going to do? He's God. All of the armies of all of the worlds, all of the nuclear weapons aimed at him. Pew, pew, pew. What is it going to do? Nothing. He's God. He's God. There is no battle. There is no war. Read the book of Revelation. It just never happens. He shows up and it's over. All he has to do is show up and it's over. It's over. There's no battle. There's no blood flowing. I I mean, come on. He's Jesus. He's God. All he does is speak the word. He simply speaks the word. He defeats them how? With the sword coming out of his mouth. You need to not picture "Ah, ah." That's not what he's saying. He's not literally got a sword coming out of his mouth. It's John's way of saying this warrior fights with his word. His word alone has power. His word alone is what is victorious. He is himself the living word. That's what the scripture says. He's the word. He judges fairly. He wages a righteous war, but there is no war. There's no match for him. All of the armies of all of the evil in all of the world can't touch him. He shows up and it's over. He just shows up and calls the vultures to come on and have a feast. You understand? There's no battle. He's God. He's God. We can't touch him. We can't fight him. We try to resist. We've tried to rebel. The devil's been rebelling since the beginning, but there's absolutely no match, no power that can touch him. He's God. So read, there is no battle. I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come eat the flesh of kings, generals, warriors, horses, and riders, and... Then I saw the beasts and kings of the world, their armies gathered together to fight. Beast was captured, the birds ate. There's no battle, there's no war. He simply is victorious. He comes already victorious. He doesn't have to fight to earn anything. He's already wearing all of the crowns. You understand? He's already got the name that nobody else can pronounce. No one has power over him. There's no battle. There's no war. There never was going to be. He's God. He arrives not somehow to strike a battle. He just comes to claim victory. He's already victorious. And understand something amazing. This is the Jesus we pray to. I don't know how you picture him. You probably picture this little scrawny, you know, Jewish guy in a a bathrobe and flip-flops because that's what he always wears in the church pageant, you know, flip-flops and a bathrobe and, and, you know, he's got a fake beard on and... And that's how you picture Jesus, somehow small and weak. I mean, the kind of person that anybody could just come and, and, and flip over. This is the Jesus we pray to. This is Jesus here. He is the king. He is victorious. And he reigns forever and ever. And there is no power that can match him. He's just victorious. 
He's all-powerful, almighty, the one who is and was and is to come. Do you understand? This is Jesus. This is who he is. This is what he's like. This is the power that he has. So when you pray, you're praying to this Jesus. Remember we said that that the whole idea of revelation is to show us Jesus. So, So understand something very important. If you come away more impressed by the war than by the warrior, you've read this wrong. If you come away more impressed by the war, by the battle of Armageddon, if that's more exciting to you than the warrior, you you read this wrong. This is a revelation of the warrior. Revelation chapter 19 verse 10 says this, the essence of prophecy is to give clear witness for Jesus. That's right before we go into this passage. It's the verse right before he comes out on his horse. So the essence of prophecy is to give clear witness to Jesus. So any kind of reading of revelation, any kind of prophecy, whether it's a preacher or a teacher or a book, whatever, anything that doesn't give clear witness to Jesus, anything that reads Revelation and manages to to bring you away from it, thinking about something other than Jesus and his victory, they've read it to you wrong. They're not following the true essence of prophecy. Prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. Y'all out there? So, so what does this mean? This picture, this, this, this revelation, this vision that John has here of, of Jesus who comes prepared like a warrior to battle, but there's no battle to fight because there's no match for him. It's a way of, of depicting, it's a way of promising that, that Jesus is victorious over all the powers that be, over all the powers that be. Now, in John's way of describing this, in his way of seeing this, he talks about armies, nations, generals, kings, because in John's world, that, that sort of, that, that was his idea of what power is. That was the world and its power and its might and its dominion. It had to do with armies and nations and generals and kings, that, that, that sort of thing. But what would this mean for us? Let's break this down. If Jesus is victorious over all of the powers that be, where do we encounter the powers? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, Paul says, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood enemies, but we wrestle against dark forces, against mighty powers at work in this dark world. So Paul has a different way of framing the battle for us. It's not flesh and blood armies that we fight. It's different. Everything is spiritual. Everything is spiritual. And so very, very truly, the world we live in is spiritual. There's there's light and there's darkness. There's good and there's evil. But, But the problem is for most of us, we don't think like that. We don't think of the world as being light and darkness, good and evil. We just think of the world as the world. This is why Revelation is so helpful, because Jesus comes out on his white horse, and you get this revelation, this true picture of who Jesus is, and what you understand is that Jesus is calling you to be victorious. All of his power, he's using on your behalf. He's fighting for you. Do you understand? All he has to do is come out and speak the word and show his blood, and the devil is defeated. 
That's all he has to do. And he's calling you to be victorious as he is victorious. This is your king. And if he is your king, then he is one who reigns over you. And that's a beautiful promise. Jesus calls you to be victorious, but... But the world has a voice too. And I would say the thing here is, is, is that the world, the, the world calls you to be comfortable. Not victorious, but, 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 but comfortable. Let's be really honest. The idea of a battle of Armageddon, that doesn't worry you. It doesn't scare you at all. You'll watch that on Fox News until you're bored with it. And then you'll turn back over to Family Feud. I think I'm saying something really true about you now, and I want you to listen. Because I think it helps us to understand how the powers are at work in our world, in our lives, and and the way we end up in this battle without knowing it. Jesus calls us to be victorious, which means we may have to go through things that we have to trust him for power over. It means we may have to persevere through very, very difficult situations. It means we may be stretched, challenged, pressed down, all of those things. I mean, Jesus isn't calling us to an easy life. He's calling us to a victorious life. Unfortunately, even as pastor of Woodburn Baptist Church, we're a really comfortable church. We're a very comfortable church. And and it is... It's eerie how uncomfortable it gets when you get too comfortable. When you're actually called not to be comfortable, but to be victorious, to, to be on the side of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The world just wants us to be safe, to be comfortable. You, you understand that? The world wants us to imagine that all of this just continues on and on and on forever. And if Revelation teaches you anything, you've got to recognize there's a beginning and an end to this. It's, it's going to end. And that's the part that's just so difficult for some of us to understand or accept. And and honestly, that's the part that bothers us because we're very comfortable in this world. Some of you could care less about the battle of Armageddon. That's not going to bother you. What's going to bother you is when Jesus comes down and, and shuts down Starbucks. That's not a joke. That's for you going to be the end of the world. When all of a sudden every Starbucks in America is shut down for good, Jesus is going to turn out the lights. Jesus is going to unplug that big, long, oily conveyor belt at Krispy Kreme, and some of you are going to have weeping and gnashing of teeth. I'm not joking. Some of you won't even hear the trumpet call of God until your Facebook goes out, and then you're going to freak out. What happened to Facebook? You understand? I'm not making a joke. I think I'm describing some of your lives. That's how small our lives are. That's how very insignificant our lives are. And we think this is what life is. And this is what I'm telling you. This is the way the world wins in us. This is how we end up not on the side of the coming conquering king at all, but we end up on the side of the world because we end up giving our heart and our allegiance to the things of the world. The problem is not that we live in the world. We have to live in the world. The problem is that we have too much of the world living in us. We're at home in this place, and this world is not our home. We live as if this world is the kingdom that that we're intended to live in, and this world is not our kingdom. 
unless you give this world your allegiance. Do you not understand what this scripture says, among other things, is that one of these days Jesus is going to come. And he's going to gather all of the important people in the world. John said kings and generals and all of that. I would say he's going to gather Beyonce. And he's going to gather Tupac. And he's going to gather all of the people in the world that you watch on television. You understand? He's going to get the Kardashians. He can have them. He's going to come and get the Kardashians. He's going to get ISIS. He's going to get Kim Jong-un. He's going to get Boko Haram. He's going to put them all in a big bowl and flush it. That's what Revelation says. This world is not our home. This world is not the place you're intended to live. There's a beginning and an end to this. And if you want to know how it ends, you're not going to be able to see the ending on your television. Cable's going to go out for good that day. Don't even call the company. Do you understand? It all ends. It's the world. It's never been intended to last forever. But oh, oh, how we've come to love it. And that says something about our souls. The world doesn't say, come be evil. The world just says, come, be comfortable, live your life, redecorate your kitchen. Understand? So that you end up living your entire life as if this is all that there is. You need to understand that Jesus reigns, that, that, that he has a kingdom that is coming. And his kingdom will completely erase the kingdom of this world that you know. None of this lasts forever and none of it is worth anything. None of it is worth anything. I saw an angel standing in the sun, shouting to the vultures flying high in the sky, come, gather together for the great banquet God has prepared. Come and eat the flesh of kings, generals, strong warriors, of horses and their riders, of all humanity, both free and slave, small and great. And the vultures all gorge themselves on the dead body. There's a beginning and an end. We know how it ends. It ends with Jesus. He is the king. To say he is the king is not to use just a religious word. To say he is the king is to say that he has all power, not just in this world, but in the universe. There is none more powerful than he is. And if you read scripture, it's not just that his kingdom has come. His kingdom is already breaking in. So where is his kingdom now? That's the question that, that asks. If his coming, kingdom is coming, but it's also already here, how is it here? Well, his kingdom is already here in any heart where he is allowed to rule and reign. You understand? Jesus' kingdom extends to wherever it is that he sits on the throne. So the question becomes, is, is Jesus on the throne of your life? His, his kingdom, if it's already breaking into the world, has it even broken into your heart yet? Because if you say that he is your king, then you have to also be saying that he has complete control over your life. 
that he is sovereign over you. That, that means he speaks and you just simply obey. He, he, he's your king. He's the master. You're the servant. That, that means that for you, there's nothing that matters as much as knowing him and loving him and serving him. He's your king. It, it means that you would trade everything this, this world has in an instant for just one single glimpse at his face. Would you? Would you trade everything in this world for, for just that one glimpse of his face? Because one day, though there won't really be a battle, there will be battle lines drawn. There will be a line drawn. According to Scripture, according to the very words of Jesus, it'll happen suddenly. In other words, you're sort of going about your life at Starbucks or watching television or whatever, and, and, and very suddenly there's a separation. All of a sudden the line is drawn, and those who belong to King Jesus will be taken with him. And those who would never allow him to be their king, the, the moment comes when he just simply turns out the light, and, and you will be shut out of his kingdom forever. I mean, today you have a choice in the matter. Today you can still claim him as your king. You can still surrender the throne of your heart over to his rule. You can do that today. But what Revelation makes so perfectly clear is that there will come a day when it will be too late for you to choose. Your choice will be made, and you will live with your choice for all eternity. Listen to me. If he is not your king now, he will not be your king then. And you will never see the inside of his kingdom. The word of scripture is that the, the king is coming. Will you be ready to meet him? Pray with me. Lord Jesus, it all seems so permanent. We read the scripture, the, the, the promise of how one day the sky will just roll up like a scroll. The stars will simply fall out of the sky like leaves in autumn. It will all be over. The sun melted, the moon collapsed, and Jesus comes to take over. It's hard for us to fathom that this world is not all that there is, that this world somehow does not go on forever and ever. It doesn't. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this house today, with all those in the sound of my voice, that, that men and women and boys and girls will check the allegiance of their hearts. I pray, Lord, that they will look and examine themselves honestly to see if it is truly Jesus who sits on the throne in their hearts. Because if he's not on the throne in our hearts, then Lord Jesus, you can't possibly be the king of our lives. And if you're not the king of our lives, then we will never see the inside of your kingdom on the other side if we will not live under your rule on this side. Lord Jesus, we are worldly and we are comfortable. Lord, some of us can't even wait for this service to be over because we're thinking about lunch, Lord. This is the way our minds work. We are so much a part of this world. 
you call us to come and be victorious, which means there may be battles for us yet to face in this life. We can have victory if we fight with you, Lord, if you fight for us, if you speak the word and show your blood. But Jesus, we continue to live this life as if you don't matter. Lord, you truly are the king. At the present moment, you're the king in any place where someone will set you on the throne of their lives, Lord. But the day will come when you will come and establish your throne on earth as it is in heaven. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. Come today. Come quickly. We are ready. We long to see your face. But if you were to come today, there are people in the sound of my voice, Lord, who would be lost forever. For their sakes, Lord Jesus, give us time. Lord, I pray that in the following moments of this service that you will have perfect control. If there are decisions that must be made, Lord, give us grace and courage to make these decisions. If they must be made publicly, Lord, give us the courage to step out. If It is the altar, Lord, that beckons us to come and find our knees in prayer. Then, Lord Jesus, help us to find ourselves at the altar, Lord. Just help us to find ourselves yielded to your sovereign power, your reign, your rule in our lives, because you and you alone are king forever. So, King Jesus, rule over us. We pray in your mighty name.